1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In 1966, most of Bridget's friends in their early 20s were settling down with jobs and or husbands. She on the other hand set off alone to travel across Poland relying on the kindness of strangers. Fascinated by what she experienced she continued to wander the highways and byways of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia seeking out remote rural communities almost untouched by the passage of time. Bridget travelled with virtually no money however this was not a problem but an opportunity. It enabled a rare and deep insight into the lives and experiences of ordinary people in these Warsaw Pact countries. We hear how she stumbles across remote German minorities, gets arrested by border guards and finds love in a youth hostel in Munich. Bridget has written a book, Cold War Warm Hearts, published by the Book Guild and this details further her adventures in the Eastern Bloc. I'm delighted to welcome Bridget Ashton, to our Cold War conversation.
0: I was young and I was thoughtless and adventurous. I was 22, nearly 22, and just leaving college. And me and my friends, we'd been hitchhiking all over the place, all over Europe and France, Spain, all over the UK. So we're experienced hitchhikers and travellers. We love travelling. And when we were leaving college... I didn't want to go off and be a teacher like most of my friends and intended to travel around the world, and I didn't quite know where. And then, this is very random, it's nothing to do with serious history, Ian. Um, <clears throat> I met this really nice looking Polish American fellow in Hereford, the town where I was at the time. And I, I thought, gosh, you know, a Polish chap's all as nice looking as him. I'll come to Poland. I mean, it seriously as (laughs) seriously as flippant as that but tied into that was this interest in seeing unknown places I had to apply for Polish visas it wasn't easy to get in but you could do it you had to apply ahead of time send off your passport which is always a bit worrying and I knew that it was a communist country and that's about all I knew to be perfectly honest so off I went, sense of adventure, off I went. And once I got there, of course, I became really interested and that led on to all the adventures I had in the following year.
1: Was it a challenge being a independent single traveller in a country like that? Did you need to be in certain places at a certain time or or were you relatively free there?
0: Well, I think we all know about the Soviet Union, where you had to be followed and guarded and watched all the time. But no, it wasn't quite like that in the socialist countries and the Eastern European countries. And in Poland, I think, I mean, I could have gone with a young communist friendship group or something like that, but I didn't. I went on my own. And when I applied to the Polish embassy about this to get a or was it the Polish travel agent, I think it was, to get um, a visa, you could get a student visa where you had to spend a minimum of whatever it was, a day, small amount of money. You would pay that for tokens to travel and they would give you a visa for up to 30 days. And I applied for that and I got that. So <clears throat> once that was all sorted out and I was able to go,
1: how did you get to Poland from the UK?
0: Well, first of all, I hitchhiked. With, I was a great hitchhiker. I was with my friend and we separated near the border of Western Germany, took um, hitchhiked into West Berlin. And then from there, the only way to get across East Germany to Poland was by train. So I was able to buy a ticket in West Berlin to the border of Poland, which is what I did.
1: And they're where from at the border of of Poland? You just get out of the train. You're at a train station in Poland. And uh, I'm just intrigued as to where you, because you haven't really got a plan as to where you're exactly going to go, have you? No,
0: I haven't got a plan. I mean, obviously I would have headed for Warsaw at some point. Well, I took the cheapest possible train ride. Remember, I had hardly any money and every penny counted. So, to take the train from West Berlin through East Berlin and to get out on the very, very first station of Poland, which is what I did. It was at a little place called Konnobit, and it was literally inside the border. So I got off the train there, and the um, the enormous steam train got off, came down as a platform, and the soldiers there tried to get me to go back on the train because they said, nobody gets off here. This is all in Polish, by the way. Nobody gets off here. Get back on the train. And I said, no. And I showed them my ticket, which was just stamped to as far as Konowice. So they were a bit bewildered, but they let me. And so I just wandered off.
1: Where were you planning to stay?
0: That's a good question. Basically, in the west of Europe, me and my hitchhiking friends, we would stay very often in youth hostels. There's an international system of youth hostels. They were very cheap. You met lots of other nice young people traveling like yourself. And when we could afford it, we stayed in youth hostels. And when we couldn't, we would ask farmers if we could stay in the barn for nothing. So it was a mixture of those things. So I knew I could find somewhere to stay. And in Poland, they had a very, very detailed network of youth hostels, some long word like Szworaniska Młodziewiewicz, something, I've forgotten exactly how you say it, but they were in really so many places in Poland that I knew I would always be able to find a youth hostel. I didn't have a tent, I just went
1: off. Right. And the, this this book sort of exudes stories of the kindness of the people that that you meet. I mean, it's yes. it's, it's incredible that People either offer you a bed or offer you a meal i mean it it's it's just some real warmth from from the people that you meet,
0: yes, well, I think, as I was a single young woman, I was fairly harmless, and I think just going off into the countryside and and being more or less sort of helpless you might say and so i would ask a farmer i would learn how to say in polish pretty quickly please could i stay in your barn tonight and they would nearly always let me or they would invite me into the house in most cases so that's that's really how i did it got into and don't forget i was very unusual i mean in poland in those days it's the first country i went to of the many i went to um they hadn't really seen westerners so here's this wandering girl wanders in with a union jack on her rucksack and they're very curious. So it was that combination of me being curious about them and them about me that um that uh, was the magic charm, I
1: think. Incredible, incredible. And um who who do you meet on your on your travels in Poland?
0: Right. Well it does not take long, of course, young single girl, you soon meet up with some boys. And I travelled up to the north eastern part of Poland the lake area with um, and I got friendly with these four boys who were called this Speraz which they translated to me I didn't know really what it meant but it meant saucy young fellow something like that but they were very friendly and they took me on over and they had a tent and we just sort of stayed together and stayed with various members of their family and so one of them spoke English the others didn't so and we just sang and laughed and did what young people do and jumped in the lake and had a gentleman. Oh, and shall I shall tell you about hitchhiking in Poland because that's really interesting.
1: Please do. Please do.
0: Yeah. Um, very first night, I stayed in Poznan again in a student youth hostel. And there was an East German girl there and she said, You must get hitchhiking cards, auto stop cards. And it's like a little card about six inches by seven with a round um, emblem on it, green and red. And you held it up. And when the drivers came along, they saw somebody holding up this card and they would stop and give you a lift. And in the back of the card, there were stamps and you could pull them out a bit like Russian book stamps, cut them out, give them to the driver. And then the driver could later cash them in. So it was a great system. There were hardly any cars on the road and there were a few lorries. And so the young people of Poland, who, who I was with and lots of other people like us, we would all stop at the side of the road and wave our card and the lorry would come along. We'd all heap up into the back and go whitting along, you know, as far as Warsaw or wherever we were going. And that was um, how basically the young people were travelling around in Poland at the time. And I did the same thing.
1: Wow. Wow. What an incredible system and, and, yeah. and worked work really well for you. Yes, it did. Um, how much Polish did you know before you went there?
0: <laughs> that was a joke, actually. Well, I was in college and I went to the library in Hereford and I got a book out called Teach Yourself Polish, or something like that. And I knew about 20 words, you know, hello, please, thank you. I could count, you have to be able to do that. Um, that was about it, really. But And it's a hard language for somebody who has no Slavic background in any Slavic language. But, you know, I, I muddled along and learned a few bits and pieces. By the time I'd been there for about... 30 days, I could have a basic level conversation, you know, where I came from and th- things like that.
1: I, I guess, yeah, being immersed in a country like that and with very few people that can speak English, it's you, you've got to, you know, you, you just pick it up um, automatically. Yeah, you have to. Yes. Right. And What did your parents think of you embarking on this journey?
0: Well, they were far away in the north of England. I was in Hereford and they were used to my friends and me sort of gadding all around Western Europe during all our holidays. They were sort of used to it and they had their own lives they were busy with and they just separated and they weren't very happy together. And so I just went off and we communicated by letter and kept in touch that way. They were all right.
1: No mobile phones or emails in those days,
0: not with nothing like it, no
1: so you were you know like incommunicado for weeks and weeks at a time, I guess
0: well I had a system you see in those days, the only way really to keep in touch with people was by letter telephones, you might as well forget it, especially in Eastern Europe, so I would plan roughly where I would be in say two weeks' time and send a letter or three or four weeks time, send a letter to my Parents and my friends, and everybody saying to write to me post restante, the next big town like Krakow or Munich or wherever I was going to. And they would do that. So then I would go to Krakow to the main post office, collect my post, and send off the next batch from there. That was how I kept in touch. That's how people knew roughly where I was, but they never knew exactly where I was.
1: Poland gives you a, a taste for further adventures. Definitely where's next that you want to explore?
0: Right. Well, this is, it would be about the end of August, early September. And so I had no money left. And everybody in those days, all the young hitchhiking brigade, knew that the best place to get jobs was Germany. So I went to Munich and I got a job in the Agfa factory, which processed people's films. Um, and I stayed there till nearly Christmas, um, working and saving up money for the next adventure, which was to be hungry.
1: And while you're there, there's quite an interesting trip you you take up to the Iron Curtain with Czechoslovakia.
0: Yes. Well, this is what interested me, you see. um, Everybody knows about the Berlin Wall. But I think in those days, many people didn't realise that the Iron Curtain went right through the countryside. So right from the Baltic Sea all the way down to the Black Sea, there was this line um, going through the countryside, which cut off villages and little country lanes were cut off from one village to the next village there would be this iron curtain between them and this sort of thing fascinated me because I always liked being in the countryside rather than in cities so from Munich when I was working in the factory I had weekends off and I cycled um, I hitchhiked up a couple of times to the border between West Germany and Czechoslovakia and East Germany and explored the areas there.
1: And what did you find there?
0: Well, there were quite a lot of adventures. I was making notes because I was planning to write um, little newspaper articles for my local paper back in England. So anyway, at one point, I saw these border guards and <laughs> had this conversation in German. I asked them what they were doing and could I go with them? And they said I could. So I travelled around in the back of their van, you know, these smart West German guards in their uniforms and we stopped and looked with binoculars over to them, over the Iron Curtain. The field, um, you could see the village far away, about two kilometres away on the other side. But between there, the Country lane was cut off. There would be a red and white single pole barrier across. And then on the other side, there would be this huge wide field. I can't remember. I could tell you how wide, 50 metres or something, that would all be ploughed up. So it was like ploughed land, completely bare. And on the other side of that, there would be the guards' towers. And the towers were on crisscross legs. And one tower could see the next tower. So all the way along there was a possibility of soldiers guarding over this great open ploughed strip. And somewhere in there, there were mines, and in some places, there were electric wires as well. So it's very difficult for anyone to get out crossing all the electric lines, the mined area, and the open barrier.
1: Yeah, because in the book, you describe, you know, families being split. There's a village of Nentschau and Posse.
0: That's exactly right. And so I was in Nenshaw and with the soldiers, we were looking over at Pasek on the other side. And, and you know, they used to go back and forth, obviously, before the war. So that lots of people had relations on both sides.
1: And that area of Czechoslovakia had been German up to the end of uh, World War. You know, it had been the Sudetenland, hadn't it?
0: I think, um, yes, I think it was Sudetenland. Um, I know when I was in Poland in the... In the western strip of Poland, that had formerly been Germany. So, you know, I had to keep all the geography in my mind all the time. I didn't know anything about that before I left.
1: Because I think it, it's important for people to be aware that, you know, these borders have been quite fluid over the uh, ages and that families, obviously, you know, married into other families and this sort of thing. And, and so often there would be relatives in what would now be another country yet. They were related to people in, you know, the West Germany or somewhere like that. Right. So you sort of work at the Agfa factory. You get some money together, and you you go off. I think into uh Slovakia. Uh, a friend of yours. Um, and you're involved in some slightly dodgy uh <laughs> dealings.
0: Well, yes, you know, I was such an innocent babe. I mean, who isn't when they're twenty two? Now, I had met Isabel in Poland and we'd kept in touch and she was in Vienna and so I joined her there and she had got a Polish boyfriend and there were some Polish emigrants, migrants who lived in Vienna and they were involved in various cross the Iron Curtain um, uh, enterprises. I didn't know what. And she went off to, to Italy and came back the next day with a couple of big bags full of shirts like Italian shirts now you wouldn't think there was anything so marvelous about that but she wanted me to go with her because she was planning to sell them in Slovakia so I said okay so we hitchhiked off and we got right through the Iron Curtain again with these plumbing bags with shirts in them. And how the guards didn't find them, I do not know. But we got through and we stayed in Bratislava and she went off to sell all the shirts and I sort of hovered around and followed her. And we did manage to sell, she did manage to sell quite a few of them. And then we got friendly with two Slovakian boys, Victor and Vlado, and they took us out to this place where you... Like a nightclub place where you drank lovely warm wine, never had such a thing, and heard all the beautiful Hungarian gypsy music, which I just loved so much. Anyway, the next day we, we they took us to the border in the car, and we said goodbye to them. And you know it was really sad because we had to sort of wave to them and say goodbye, and they couldn't come out, but we could. And and it was things like that that were so poignant, so um, you know, sad really. However, we got out again and once again we got through with the remains of her Italian shirts and that was my smuggling adventure, my first smuggling adventure.
1: Your first? You've done others?
0: <laughs> so we went a little bit later on, yeah.
1: <laughs> right, okay, okay. You then move on into Hungary and you're, you're there to visit a friend's family um, who is in the United Kingdom. Now, he's called Henry. Can you just explain Henry's story?
0: Yeah. Yes, I will do. Yes, in 1956, in Hungarian Revolution, um, so many young people, especially students, and so on. He was one. Left Hungary, and in my family, my parents decided they would host um, a Hungarian student. So Imre Gulyas, he was called. We anglicised his name. He anglicised his name to Henry. He lived with us for a couple of years while he finished his studies in Newcastle. And his mother and my mother, when I was a teenager. Uh, you would communicate from time to time, I think, in German. So when I was going to Hungary, um, I contacted Henry's family, and they were so kind, you know, come and stay and everything. So that's where I was heading next. And that was in Mezöberény, which was in the southeast corner of Hungary, the complete opposite end from Austria.
1: Because I think that Henry was in the Hungarian army when the revolution started. Yes, he was. Isn't he? That's correct. Yes. Um, and it's an interesting uh, story about how he gets out to, to the the UK.
0: And I didn't know any of this at the time. I just found this out when I was writing the book Now. I managed to um, communicate with him and he told me these stories. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people
1: and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. What was it like meeting his family?
0: Well, okay, so I'm hitchhiking from Austria. I got a few lifts all the way through Budapest, the other side, and it was getting late, and I was tired, and I had a cold, and and I... I just didn't know really what it was going to be like going to this family. I had no idea. I got on a train for the last bit and then got off the train and walking through this dark little village with no lights and didn't know how to find Arpad Utsa. And the postman took me. So he, because he knew obviously where it was. It was about nine o'clock at night and knocked on the door. and, And Henry's family, you know, they must have been all in bed. And they got up and they sort of opened the door. It's Bridget. <laughs> and they were just so amazed. And they held their arms open and they sort of hugged me. And it was such a warm welcome. I was just really so relieved. And they put the light on, one single light bulb that hung down from the ceiling and made me some food. Because I was dirty and tired and just blowing my nose. You know? I wasn't a very <laughs> glamorous figure. And then, they put me to bed, obviously, and they had one of these beds where the, um, the the two, the mother and father of the family slept in this big bed with feather mattress, and then along the bottom of the bed there was a, a single bed for the servant or somebody like that, and and I was put there, and my had a feather bed too, and I was so cozy and so warm, and that's where I stayed for the next couple of weeks.
1: Oh, that's lovely. That's a lovely. Um, story, and I think that one of the things I love about it is you're actually delivered by the postman.
0: Yes, I could say that. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: So you, you spend some time with the family. What 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 do you see in in Hungary at that time? Being part of that family.
0: Well, I mean, to me, the Hungarian culture was astonishing. Now I know this is deep, dark communism. It was the middle of winter. It was cold and it was dark, but it was the rural life of the village that fascinated me as soon as he went out of the wall into the street from this house there would be horsemen driving these beautiful horses which would have a little cart behind them or the hay on it or whatever it had and these handsome men with their sheepskin jackets and their big black hats and they'd be driving these horses along well i'd never seen anything like this i mean i found it amazing and then there was all the food there was it was just so different And one morning I was woken up by some noises in the kitchen, lots of conversation. And I found out that what they had done before I'd woken up, the pig killer had come and they killed the pig and they'd done whatever they had to do. Horrible, I'm sure, because I'm a vegetarian, you know, I didn't like that kind of thing. And there they all were in the kitchen eating whatever they ate from the freshly killed pig. And all during that day and the next day, there was smoking as these vats were melting the fat on the stove and sausage machines. And they would mince up the meat and they would stuff the intestines of the pig with this sausage meat and <laughs> mix it all up with red pepper and every shape of sausage you could imagine. And then there were the great big hams, which they salted in these big vats. Well, I mean. Honestly, I had never seen anything like this. That was just one aspect of, of Hungary, and then Marika, who was this, Imre's, Henry's sister and her husband, they took me up to Budapest for a couple of days, which was so kind of them. I mean, they pay for everything, and we stayed in with a friend of theirs in Budapest and went to the opera, and you know, it was just so incredible. And then we came back, and then of course another thing I loved was. They didn't really do this, but they did it for me. They took me to a, like a local bar in Mesobareni, this village where we were. And they had this Hungarian gypsy music, which I found so amazing. And the, the gypsy violinists would come over to a table and play whatever you wanted to play. You know, you only had to hum it and you could play it. And then they would play waltzes and Shawnee's was was husband would get me up and waltz around this little caliphate <laughs> you know, from a little lass from the countryside of England. This was just, you know, just astonishing. It was wonderful.
1: It must have seemed a bit like a fairy tale or something like <laughs> you, that. Could
0: say, you could say that. But at the same time, I wasn't in any illusions really. I mean, I was interested in the farms, the countryside, and it had all been collectivised and the fields were bleak and and stubble, covered with stubble and puddles and just a generally unhappy feeling about the countryside. There really was.
1: This was 10 years after the Hungarian uprising. So what what, what impact had that had?
0: The thing is, I, I don't really know how I could have interpreted that. I knew there was a sense that you had to be very careful what you said when you were out. How much of it was actually due to the revolution, I can't say. But I know that on Christmas Eve, Henry's mother, my host uh, hostess, she worked at the local telephone exchange. So she took us all to the telephone exchange. And we were, there were about five or six of us in the family. I was included as one of the family and gave us all a line. And then she or I don't know whether she did it or Henry did it, but he was living in Holland at the time. And we had this conversation across the Iron Curtain. And, you know, this sort of sadness in everybody's voices. They're listening to their son, their brother, and they can't see each other. and They can't be together. And you know, that's really, really sad.
1: Yeah, it must have been really, really tough for them. But it sounds like they almost, you know, took you were part of the family.
0: Yes, they did. Yes, they did.
1: So after Hungary, um, I think Belgrade is your next destination in January.
0: That's right. Yes. I'd met um, a student when I was in Poland who was from Belgrade. And he said, you know, you must come to beautiful Belgrade. And so he we kept in touch through the post and he organized me to stay in a student hostel. Um, So that's what I did for the next few months. And again, You know, this was Tito's Yugoslavia, not that I knew much about anything like that. And I was able to get enough um, work doing English lessons informally to just support myself while I was in Yugoslavia. I didn't really earn any money, but I could support myself. So that was what I did next.
1: Right. And how did Yugoslavia compare to uh, Poland or um, Hungary? Did it seem a bit freer?
0: I probably a little bit. I mean don't forget I was utterly naive. I didn't really nobody bothered me, nobody tried to question me or so I just floated around with the students of, of that I met. You know we just did normal studenty things. But I think that they probably it was fairly um more liberated and Certainly, I didn't ever get any sense that I was being watched, or I did in Hungary a few times, but not in Yugoslavia. And you know, I would hitchhike off at weekends and do different things. And
1: Did you do similar stuff, like off into sort of areas off the beaten track?
0: Yes, I always did that. And in this particular case, I went to the Danube. I wanted to see the scenery around the Danube. I heard it was wonderful, Danube Gorge and everything. Never did actually get to the most scenic place, but I was sharing a room with two Albanian girls and one of them um, came with me, who ran. I think the name was, and we hitchhiked all the way off along these roads. I mean, there were hardly roads. They were just like dirt tracks to the Danube. And when we got to this one village, um, we found out that it was going to be drowned because they were going to um, make a big dam and all the villages around there were being um drowned in the dam so that was very touching and that was on a Saturday evening and the villagers were again very curious about me because I couldn't speak any of their languages you know they never met anybody who (laughs) didn't understand plain English so to speak so they were the man got this accordion out and they all started dancing in a circle and me and my friend joined in and oh and again it was so so sad somehow to think that there's these people in the middle of nowhere i mean such an isolated place and that they were all going to be drowned moved out of their houses and you know, it's very touching the next day it was market day and uh, they let me take a photograph of them with the geese and ducks for sale and things which is in the book you know it's a nice lovely photograph of them all
1: yeah you've got some lovely photos in in the book I mean, you know, I, I said at the start, it's sort of like a window into, you know, a, t- a time that's gone. But the the photos are, are lovely, and I think you've got some colour ones later on in there as well when you're in Bulgaria.
0: The, yes, that's right. Because in those days, there wasn't colour film in Eastern Europe. If there was, I never found it. It was hard enough to get black and white film. Never mind, colour just didn't exist. And I had a few colour transparency films which i brought with me and so i was able to get a few and i think they are pretty rare actually from the 60s in eastern europe those photographs
1: one of my favorite pieces in the the book round about this time is when you're in sort of a very remote area of slovakia and you know that you're in an area where a lot of the people around there are multilingual because you know there's a a number of borders on 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 different countries, but I loved the the story of the woman asking you uh, a question about the moon.
0: Oh yes, okay, and well, I'll tell you about her. Now I have to remember her name. Can you just remind me what the name is, Mrs. with
1: Podolsky, or Yes.
0: Yeah. something. Well, they, they took me in. They were really lovely people, and she. Oh, I'd have to remember. I think she was Slovakian and her husband was Slovakian. So she spoke Slovak. They certainly all spoke Hungarian and they certainly all spoke German because there were German minorities, people who've been there since the Middle Ages in this area. You know, it was very multi-ethnic. So she was she was the cleaner at the local school. She obviously didn't have high level of education in our sense, but she could speak three languages. right? Three languages. We can't even speak technically worth of French, most and, of us. And years.
1: Hungarian is and Hungarian.
0: particularly difficult. Yes, that's right. And all of those languages are unrelated. There's nothing the same about any of them. So we were walking along the street and we were looking up at the moon. And she said to me, do you have a moon in England too? And I thought that was such a lovely question because how could she know anything about that? You know, we take it for granted, but you don't if you live in a remote place like that at that time. But it's nothing to do with intelligence. It's to do with what you've learned. And she could speak three languages, you know, which was awesome.
1: Yeah, and it does give the impression that you in terms of your experiences, you're almost travelling back centuries rather than decades. Yes. With, I think
0: with- you could certainly say that, sort of certainly nineteenth century, definitely. And they were used to, in that village, they were Slovakians, they were used to the Hungarians having the big farms and being the boss, because it, this area had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, been part of Hungary until 1918, whenever it was. And so they were used to the Slovakians just getting temporary work in the summer on the Hungarian farms. They were sort of the lowest of the low in the um, economic echelons. So, yes, it was a bit like, it does make you think of Tolstoy and the peasants and, you know, the the landowners.
1: And in April of 67, you're back in, in Czechoslovakia, and this time you're the other side of the border where you met those West German border guards. Yes. And... What are you seeing the other side of the the border there? I mean, and and who are you you with there?
0: After I'd left Slovakia, then I headed off to the Czech part of Czechoslovakia. And I was staying in a hostel, sort of youth sports centre place in this town of Cheb, which was on the other side of the West German frontier. So... I was there with, um, made friends with this young man called Peter, who was 16. He was the son of the hostel wardens. And the night before, we had looked up at the wood on the horizon, and there was a dome from a little church there. Nice, attractive-looking little historic building. I thought, I'd like to go up and have a look at that. So the next morning, when I woke up, it wasn't there. I thought, what's this? This is strange. So I decided to go and have a look. So Peter and I went up there. He was as foolish as me. We're going right up to the border now. And we got there and all we could see was a few bits of ruins. It had been exploded during the night. So there we were wondering what to do. thought we'd better head home. And we're going down a slope in, in a clearing in the forest. And then along came this two soldiers. With this great big Alsatian dog who was pulling them along, and they had these big guns and they were rushing up and they got us. (laughs) It seems amazing now. Anyway, they got us and asked us all kinds of questions. I don't know what we said. And they made us wait while they radioed to get a Jeep. And the Jeep came along and then they blindfolded us and put us in this Jeep and took us off somewhere in the forest. We didn't know where we were going. And this dog was panting next to me I was sitting in the back of the jeep in my ears you can imagine that was pretty scary and then we got out of the jeep and there were these two rows of soldiers with batons and we had to walk like we were walking the gauntlet between these soldiers (laughs) like we were some kind of super spies or something anyway we went through and we sat in this room and then this um soldier came he was made to sit with us and i don't know they must have asked us lots of questions and anyway the soldier was sitting and we didn't know how long we were going to be sitting there so peter said to the soldier that i was hungry and please would they get me some food (laughs) the soldier he didn't know what to say and then peter said by the way she's vegetarian please can you get something that's vegetarian so I didn't know what he thought and then Peter asked him how long we would be staying there and the soldier didn't know and he said you know anywhere up to two days and you know we were just sitting there like two wallies not knowing what was going on eventually it doesn't have a sad ending of course but eventually they realized that we were just a couple of foolish youngsters and um they did let us go and they blindfolded us again and took us away and the, the soldier who, the more superior soldier, said, you know, don't come round the border again, type of thing. So we got away safely. But it was quite an experience, I can tell you. I mean, that's the sort of thing that if it hadn't ended nicely, you know, my parents would have known where I was. Nobody knew where I was.
1: Wow. I think you talk about that area as being there's like empty farmhouses or farms there, because the ethnic German population were evicted at the end of World War Two.
0: That's absolutely the case, yes. There were these great German farms. It was probably what the schools for Dayton land, but I didn't know that at the time. But yes, they were. And I remember speaking to a, a local farmer man at one of these places, and he said, nobody likes those buildings. That's where the Germans were. Nobody wants them. That's what he said.
1: So you're back in Munich in 1967, and you meet Bill. Tell me about Bill and how you meet him.
0: Well, we were in the youth so which is, you know, the place where young people like me would meet all our similar people. And we went out for a drink in a bar, German bar, with about five of us. And he had this twinkle in his eye and I really liked him. And we sort of <laughs> twinkled our eyes at each other across the table. And we got, became very friendly and I needed some, oh, I did have a tent by then because I bought a tent when I'm in Czechoslovakia and I needed to get some money because I had nothing. And I thought I'd go home and I was writing a few newspaper articles. I'd get some money. My father might give me a bit. So I said to Bill, you can keep my tent while, well, because he had to know it to sleep. After the three days in the youth hustle you were turned out. So I said, you could keep my tent while I go off to England. So I hitchhiked off to England and crossed the channel and went up to Newcastle and managed to get myself on telly. And in those days, they paid you to appear on the television right and they had paid you to do radio interviews and I got some money from the few articles I'd written and my granny gave me a tenner and I came back with about 60 pounds so I hitchhiked back which was a fortune for me so hitchhiked back across the channel hitchhiked back to Munich not really knowing for sure whether he would have scarpered off with my tent you know I'd only known him a few days but there he was and we continued to get along really really well. Now, he had been in the U.S. Army, and after he finished the army, he wanted to travel the world. So he and his friend came off to Europe and were traveling around. And he managed to get a job in an American army hostel in um, Munich. So he stayed there for the summer while my sister and I went off and explored some of the other countries of Eastern Europe that I hadn't been to yet.
1: Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subjects so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. Yeah, because I think you, you go off to uh, Romania in, That's correct. So this yeah. is round about the, the start of Ceausescu's um, yes. regime. And and what's what, what do you see there in Romania?
0: Well, again, I mean, I was absolutely gobsmacked by this country. It was so it was really like living in history. We my sister and I um I was with my sister Rosie, who was four years younger than me, and we crossed over from Yugoslavia into Romania. And everybody was so amazed to see us. They just hadn't seen people like us. And they were sort of almost fighting over who was going to have them look after us for night and give us a lovely room to stay. So that was something wonderful. From there, we went up into Transylvania and we went up into the high, high mountains. And again, the um, young romanians of the time at their weekends they would do something like hossing you know hike, hiking from mountain cabin to another along paths right up in the high high beautiful mountains so we went up into those places and we stayed in this cabana and we were walking the next day with a couple of young romanians and they said that we would see the shepherds up in the hills. Now, I love countryside. I love country life and country people. And I was really fascinated by this. So we got up into the high, high mountains and there were these Chibani, the shepherds, who took the flocks up to the top of the mountains for the pastures. So it's like Heidi for the summer. And they had hundreds, if not thousands of sheep and they would spend the whole summer up there with these beautiful sheep and these scenes that you've never seen anything like. And they were all wearing... Um, still wearing homespun clothes like tartans, woolen um, plaids and boots made of leather and and this sheepskin hats. And they were so exotic looking and so, you know, that lifestyle. And what they wanted, of course, was cigarettes. And we all smoked in those days, bad girls that we were, but everybody did. And we had some American cigarettes and we were able to give them some of those, which they were very pleased with. And then they allowed us to take photographs in that beautiful scenery of them with a the sheep in the
1: background. There's some great photos in in the book there that that you uh, share as well. And you you also uh, meet some more ethnic Germans in Romania. Yes,
0: that's right. That's right. Now in Siebenbergen the Seven Towns um, of Transylvania. Prince Charles is very keen on Shigashara, which is one of them. And the, those seven towns of Transylvania, I think they had been settled by Germans since about 131400. And I think that that's the origin of the story of the Pied Piper. You know, the Germans left their, their locations in Saxony and they moved to these remote, what were then remote borderlands, like the wild west of Europe in those days. Anyway, they settled these towns. And... It was beautiful, little pointy roof churches and all just like Christmas card towns. And when we had been up in the mountain, my sister and I had met a family from, from one of these towns, Hermannstadt, they called it, and in remaining at Sibiu, and they invited us to stay with them. So we did that. We when we came down from the mountain, we stayed with them for a few days. And it was interesting hearing their stories because they all wanted to emigrate. And there was no chance, no possibility of emigrating to the West. It wasn't even a consideration. But they wanted to go to East Germany, which to them was away from escaping from the environment in which they found themselves. Because after the war, the Germans were very much looked down on and the Romanians had the power, had the government, and and they were not kind to the Germans. Well, you know, maybe they deserved it. But that was the situation. So we stayed with them and we heard their stories and that I learned a lot about it because they could speak a bit of English as well. I learned a lot about life in Romania from them.
1: It's a, a fascinating story and again illustrates these different nationalities, not necessarily living in the country of their language, but being scattered across these um, borderlands. So I think your you, your next destination is uh, Bulgaria.
0: That's right. Yes. So off we go, not having a clue <laughs> what we're we going to find. So we crossed over the Danube, and we're, suddenly we're in Bulgaria. And again, the um, the language is a bit like Serbian. I had to learn a bit of Serbian when I was in Belgrade, so I could read Cyrillic words, and that all helped. We got to Varna. Which was on the Black Sea in one day, and there was a celebration. It was the um, what was it the eighth of September when um, Bulgaria had been liberated by the Russians, something like that. And there were all these people in the streets and celebrations and big pictures of Lenin, flags, and so this was clearly um, a festival, a socialist festival that we'd run into, which was really great and. We went to the seaside and we danced with the bagpipers and, you know, just had a lovely time. And yeah. we saw the Black Sea for the first time. So that was the um, the seaside resort of really quite a lot of the East European countries, I think. They went there, the people.
1: Yeah, that Lake Balaton, from what I can make out, is the uh, the, the beach holiday of choice of a lot of people in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and uh, you you almost get, arrested for uh, taking photos of something you shouldn't be taking photos of in bulgaria
0: <laughs> that's right well there we were after we'd had a day or two by the seaside catching up with ourselves we went off to i thought we thought we'd go down towards the turkish border with bulgaria so the iron curtain runs between or in those days it ran between bulgaria and turkey And so we were there and I think I saw some pretty gypsy girls and I was taking photographs and I got shouted at by the police and and, um, was told I couldn't do it. And then we went to very close again to the border because I was always interested in the collective farms. I'm interested in farming. And we got to this wonderful gateway to a pig farm. It was a pig collective farm. And my sister was... Talking to the people at the gate, and I went back a bit and took some photographs of this extraordinary gateway. And it had a picture of Zhivkov, the current president of Bulgaria, and all these sort of emblems about. I think it was was it seventy years since sixty years since the revolution. This I'm sorry about my math, but um, something like that. And then there was a sign showing the five year plans with this pig. <laughs> and it had how many pigs they had in 1967 and how many they had to have for 68, 69, 70 and so on. And these targets for the number of pigs they had to produce. So all the workers who went into the pig farm knew exactly you know where they were supposed to be aiming for in their work projects. So, you know, found that was interesting.
1: Then you are back in uh, Yugoslavia, where you go over to... Uh- sarajevo and bosnia yes
0: yeah, so well i went back to munich with my sister from there and then i met bill again because he'd been working in the american army hotel so bill and i got together rosie went back to england and we were getting ready to go off on our travels and he went we went together to the american express for him to collect his post and he got this letter and he opened it and it called him up for two more years active duty. Can you believe it? And we nearly fainted on the spot. You know, he'd done his draft. In those days, These young fellows were drafted. We nearly fainted on the spot. And the young fellow behind the counter saw us, asked us what was happening. And we told him, and he took the letter from us. He said, said, I'll send it back, opened in error. (laughs) So we took off. And we traveled down from Munich to Yugoslavia. We passed through Sarajevo vaguely and had a lot of adventures crossing over Yugoslavia too, actually. But from there, we went back to England. And that was really the end of my year in a bit. I'd left Hereford in August 66, and we are now um, November 1967. So that was the long period of time I'd been traveling like that.
1: Wow. And that's incredible adventures you managed to pack into that as well.
0: Yeah. And all the time I was there, I was writing diaries, you see. And I had all these folders and notebooks and they just stayed at home in a suitcase for years. And it was only in the last two or three years when I thought, oh, I'll make a story about this. And so I was able to use them to write my new book, which is called Cold War, Warm Hearts, in which all these stories are in and many, many more.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And we're delighted that you have delved into that suitcase and uh, and shared these stories. They are amazing and there's loads more um, in in the book as, as well. Um, aside from meeting Bill, what would you say was your most memorable or favourite experience?
0: Mm, that's such a hard question and it's so long ago I think I think the hospitality of the people the Hungarian family I stayed with the farmers you know I was I couldn't get out of Poland because there was some problem with my visa that's another story and it's at night and I don't know what to do so I go up and I knock on the farm door and I ask if I can stay there and they say yes you know this sort of thing happened to me all the time and it was the kindness of people I'm throwing myself at their mercy and they just always responded and usually just didn't let me stay in the barn but gave me the best feather bed you know it it was it was just a time when maybe country people particularly but maybe all of them were just more hospitable more open more ready to accept strangers I think that's the great feeling I had traveling around on my own like that.
1: Yeah, because I think you comment in the book that particularly in Romania, that situation changed in terms of being able to take in foreigners without permission.
0: Yes, I I think it became illegal after that. Now, when I was writing this book, I actually got an old copy from the 80s of um, a rough guide to Romania, Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. And I was able to check up then because when we went there, it was still okay to stay with people. But as Ceausescu's regime got more and more brutal, they forbade the Romanian people to even speak to foreigners, never mind put them up in their houses. But when we were there, it hadn't quite got to that. So it was like a sort of window when the Romanian people could be their natural, kind, hospitable selves. So it was a sort of window. In fact, I think in a way the whole of my adventures are a kind of window. It was after the Hungarian Revolution, it was before the Czech Revolution, and it was before the worst of Ceausescu. It was kind of a little interlude, you might say.
1: Absolutely. Have you revisited any of these places since then?
0: Hugely, hugely. As soon as in 1980, because I came home, had a family was occupied being at the children for the next couple of decades but in 1989 when it all opened up I mean I was riveted like you sitting on the right steps you know I couldn't believe it none of us had expected that this would happen not even the most clever foresight journalists politicians none of us realized this would all happen and I was totally riveted by it and every year from then on, for the next 15, 20 years, I would go there summer, always in the summer, usually or often at Easter as well, sometimes in the winter, and I would revisit all these places. And by this time, I had learned to be a better photographer, so I did photographic projects and, um, you know, still do. I'm still in touch with Imri Gulyas from the Hungarian family, from some of the people I met in Romania. But... Um, I've never stopped being interested, really, in following what's happening over
1: there now. Now, there is plenty more in the book. Uh, The book is called Cold War Warm Hearts. It's by Bridget Ashton, and it's published by the Book Guild. There's a link in the episode notes, which will help support local bookshops and Cold War conversations. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening, and see you next week.